Today we are in uh, week four of our series where we're asking the question, what does the Bible say about? Uh, And we've covered various topics. Our topic this morning is eternal destiny. What happens to us after we die? Um, It's such a good question and one that has been around forever. It's a question that over time has brought many different answers and conclusions. And today we live in a world that has a lot of confusion about our eternal destiny. There are many misconceptions about what eternity looks like, or if there even is an eternity, uh, or what it takes to get there. Uh, Who's in charge of our destiny? Are we in control of it? Um, Does our destiny have something to do with our actions in in this life? Uh, Is eternal destiny even worth caring about? This life in the present demands so much of us already. The topic of eternal destiny brings about many questions, and I was thinking about this throughout the week, that we learn to ask these questions from a pretty young age. Uh, I was thinking, like, when do we become aware of there's something beyond this life? Uh, When does that concept um, become known to us? And obviously, if there's experience in the family growing up, that's uh, something that will bring about this topic, but uh, also other influences around us that will bring it to our attention. Things like media, for me, is what, when I started first asking questions, um, for instance, there was a movie when I was younger, a cartoon movie, called All Dogs Go to Heaven. I don't know if you remember this movie. Some of you are nodding yes. Now, I'm sure there wasn't a theological consultant on that team of producers that would say, like, hey, if you want to be accurate, you should make sure that some of the dogs don't go to heaven. (laughs) But the title conveys something, some kind of belief, and as a kid, I'm paying attention to that. Uh, Or in Lion King, when Mufasa dies, and then Simba, okay, if that's a spoiler, that's on you. Because (laughs) the original has been out for as long as I've been alive. Plus, it's on Broadway. There's just multiple, you should have seen it. Um... Mufasa dies, and then Simba sees him up in the sky, looking down on him, giving some some father-son advice, and so there's something being conveyed about death and life after death. Uh, Or in Star Wars, when Yoda comes back in these vision things for modern Jedi. Okay, some some of these, I'm just trying to hit everyone with these examples, and I don't know. Um, But my point is that from outside the church, outside of religious circles, people have preconceived notions, beliefs, uh, maybe even well-thought-out beliefs pertaining to something after death about what eternal destiny looks like. And it's not easy to answer. It's not uh, easy to quantify, but it's something that we all wonder and we want an answer for. And we as believers are not immune to wondering about this. Uh, We see even... In the church, even the fact that this question was submitted for this series about what the Bible says about uh, people question what is after this life. And so it's a good question, and it's a good thing that we have the Bible to turn to. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 25, or pay attention to the screen and follow along as I read our passage this morning. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. God, we come before you recognizing that you are the King of kings, Lord over all, that you are sovereign and that um, you are in control. And for that we praise you and we're thankful. And God, we're thankful for the mercies that are new to us every morning. As we come uh, to church this morning uh, to listen to your word, I pray that you would, your truth would be heard, our hearts would uh, be receptive to hearing what you have to say, and uh, we want to, we come seeking your truth and your wisdom. And as we seek these things, God, we also recognize that your ways are above our ways. And God, we pray that as um, we seek to live a life that glorifies you, that you would give us joy in doing so, that you would fill our hearts with your spirit, and we leave encouraged today and empowered uh, to live for you. And so pray for our time this morning, that it's glorifying to you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Our question uh, this morning is, what does the Bible say about eternal destiny? And I believe that the Bible says all of humanity will face God's judgment and will then experience an eternity in heaven or hell. Again, I believe that the Bible says all of humanity will face God's judgment and will then experience an eternity of heaven or hell. Uh, Our eternal destiny was addressed by Jesus on several occasions throughout his ministry, and he expounded upon what the future would look like. Just in the book of Matthew, there are parables about um, the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed, yeast and flour, uh, the net full of fish, the ten virgins, the talents, and all of these address the eternal destiny of humanity. In these parables, Jesus is not only explaining what the kingdom of heaven is, but that not everyone will be getting in, and that there are two responses to God's call. And these parables are there to help the believer understand the weight that God's kingdom should have in their lives, while also saying that the weight that it doesn't have in those who don't believe. The kingdom of God is one destination, while hell, a place described in detail of a terrifying reality, is the other. 
and really it would be worth it to spend time on our own, a, a lot of personal study through all these parables um, and through the Bible about what it says about eternal destiny, but for this morning our passage has plenty to offer us. And so in our passage I see three things um, that Jesus tells us about our eternal destiny. The first is that there will be a final judgment. The second is how we will be judged. And the third is that there is a heaven and a hell. So a final judgment, how we will be judged, and then a heaven and a hell. And let's start with the final judgment. Verses 31 through 35 uh, show that Jesus is on the throne. All the nations are present, and there's going to be a separation the sheep and the goats. And so we can right away start by knowing that there is a day of judgment. Our eternal destiny is contingent upon what is decided this day by God. And already we're addressing some of the misconceptions that are out there. Uh, Misconceptions and lies that people believe about what happens after we die. Things like just being a good person is good enough to get into heaven. Um, And people who are good enough, every, let me start over, sorry. People uh, believe that humanity is pretty much good um, and getting better, and so that most people will be getting into heaven. Uh, good people get into heaven. Some people believe that there is no heaven or hell. There's nothing afterwards. Um, there's even misconceptions within the church. Christians who believe that there is no hell because God would not send people to such a place out of his, uh, because he loves them. Uh, Some people believe that uh, the only people going to a hell are the really bad people, but how they would define really bad is totally subjective. Um, So these are just misconceptions and lies that beliefs uh, and beliefs that differ from what Scripture teaches us, and they can lead to a doctrine that says that sin has no consequences, that Jesus' death maybe doesn't mean anything, or that it did save everyone, um, that everyone is going to heaven. And these are even things that, like I said, we hear from Christians today in churches. But we see clearly here in our passage that Jesus uh, says that there's going to be a day of judgment, a judgment that affects our eternal destiny. It's not up to us. We are not in control. And Jesus doesn't say that everyone in the world goes to one big happy place afterwards, but rather declares that there is a terrifying eternity for those who do not believe and a glorious one for those who do. And Jesus is describing a day unlike any other in this final judgment. There is glory, the presence of angels. He's sitting on the throne. Verse 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And I I love this picture that it paints for us. I don't get the sense of just dread or terror that we often associate with a day of judgment. But it seems like there's also a bit of wonder and a fullest sense of awesome and amazing power and the authority of God present on this day. Judgment does give us a sense of terror and fear um, of what the sentence will be. And I think that's partly because of our experience here on earth of judgment. And probably the most uh, comparable situation would be a defendant on trial, that they're accused, something they're accused of doing wrong against the law, and they're facing the ruling of the court, the punishment for their actions. And I, I would imagine that at That is certainly terrifying to have your future being decided by a jury and a judge. 
but this is an experience that not everyone goes through. Um, to be honest, I've never gotten to the fullest part of, I've never been on jury duty, I've always gotten out. Well, not on purpose. Um, but my, my knowledge of the courtroom just comes from TV courtroom shows. So my point is that there's, uh, not everyone goes through a, this experience here on earth of judgment, but in that there's another thing. One can go their whole life and not step into a courtroom or be a defendant on trial, but this day, this day of judgment is one that everyone will face. And if Jesus had not died on the cross for our sins, then on this judgment day, everyone would be facing the same punishment. All would be found guilty. But because he has gifted us salvation, because he died on the cross and saved us from the punishment of our sins, those who believe will be found righteous. I mentioned last week this term justification, this legal change in our status of guilty uh, because of our sins to being seen as righteous in God's eyes because God is now seeing Christ's perfection and Christ atoning for our sins. And that is for this judgment day. And so now instead of everyone being found guilty, there are two possible outcomes. And while this day does have a sense of terror and unknown about it, there's also the sense of glory and wonder at Christ's presence and the work that he has done. So Jesus, Jesus shares that this day of judgment means that there will be a separation, and he uses this illustration of sheep and goats. Uh, this is an illustration that he's used before, and it's one that the people of Israel are familiar with. Uh, the Old Testament is full, as I'm sure you know, full of sheep illustrations, where God is, or the God's leader is the shepherd, and the people are the sheep. So Jesus is playing off of that knowledge to help them better understand what he says in verse 32. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And to help us better understand this verse, because I don't know if any of you are shepherds, uh, but to give it some context, the NIV study Bible explains that Palestinian sheep and goats often look similar from a distance and often graze together, but they needed to be separated at night because the goats required a warmer place to rest. I found that interesting, that a normal shepherd, standard shepherd practice is goats and sheep are together, and then there's a time of separation. And this continues a theme that Jesus has taught throughout the, these parables, uh, that all of humanity is all together. Believers and non-believers are together until the end. And we don't know who is a sheep and who is a goat. It's not like we're walking around knowing that we are sheep and that other people are certainly most definitely goats. Because uh, belief is a matter of the heart, and no one can judge the heart but God. We'll get to our hearts more in a bit. There will be a judgment, which means a separation of goat and sheep, one representing the righteous, the other the wicked, one going to heaven, and the other to hell. And like I said before, no one is immune from this judgment. All will face Jesus on the throne and will be subject to his ruling. So verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations. Everyone from the world will face this day. And so what does the Bible say about our eternal destiny? Well, the first thing from our passage this morning is that there is a day of judgment, a separation, where all will stand before God. Next is, how will we be judged? Well, in verses 34 through 45, the majority of our passage, 
we see that we will be judged into two groups, the righteous and the wicked, the sheep and the goats. feel bad for the goats. They just get a bad rap in the Bible. We want to be sheep. I don't want to read all that again, but I do want to point out that we notice a couple similarities. Both the righteous and the wicked have the same opportunities. And for both parties, their eternal destinies come down to how they responded to Jesus. Both the righteous and the wicked have the same opportunities. It's this list that Jesus gives us, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned. It's these opportunities that, we'll face, that we will all face in some way or another and will be a part of the judgment. Jesus is saying that there will be opportunities in your life to show love, whether they look exactly like this list or something like it, but there will be opportunities to show mercy, kindness, and compassion. And will you take those opportunities to do so? Now, just to be clear, this is not uh, saying or supporting a faith of works, that doing these things will get you into heaven. That would be easier, though, in some ways, right? If we could just walk around with a checklist in our pocket of, if I just do these things, I'm good. I'll be deemed righteous on this judgment day. I'll be on the right side. And for the sake of thought, I just want to play this out. Can you, let's all imagine for a second living in a world where good deeds, good works would get you into heaven. On one hand, this is amazing, right? This would be so great. Uh, people would maybe no longer be thirsty. Water and even hunger would no longer be an issue because we are all striving so, so much to address these things. People would be clothed. The sick and the imprisoned would not deal with loneliness or lack of relationship or the isolation that they, that they experience. In a lot of ways, this sounds pretty ideal. This sounds like it would be a great world to live in. And why wouldn't we want these standards to be a reality, to be our usual? But in this world of good deeds, where is our heart? Where would our hearts be? Yes, physical needs could, uh, would be improved, but what would the status of our heart? Would people see a need for God? Or would the world just see endless opportunities to serve themselves, to save themselves, to earn their way to heaven and to make sure that they avoid hell? I think if we really were to go down that road of a world of good deeds, we would see that people's hearts would be somehow even more selfish and self-centered and self-serving than they are today. We know the Bible says that salvation is not achieved in any way. You can't earn your way to heaven. It is a gift from God, and without him, we have no hope of eternal life. So it's not a faith about works, but rather it speaks to the fruit of one's heart, a heart that knows God. And a person's heart is for God alone to know, but the fruit, however, is what we can see. And hopefully the fruit of our hearts, what we produce, is glorifying to God and not not self-serving. The fruit of the heart is what Jesus is talking about in our passage. And so who are the wicked and the righteous? How will we be judged? These acts that Jesus lists are the fruit of those who love God. It's what he's going to be looking for. He's looking for the evidence of a repentant heart and one that is truly following Christ. If one is truly following Christ, then they're loving others. They're feeding the hungry. They're giving drink to the thirsty, inviting the stranger in, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and the imprisoned. While the fruit of the selfish 
and the ones who don't believe are not doing these things. Jesus wants us to love one another, and by one another he means the church, the brothers and sisters that we have in Christ. And so I want to ask, are we as believers caring for each other? Is the church, in the world's eyes, the big church, a place where the world sees the love of Jesus lived out amongst itself? This is one of the marks of the early church. We see that in Acts chapters 3 and 4. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They're selling their possessions to all as any had need. The number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. There was not a needy person among them. The church in Acts had a reputation of providing for each other, loving one another. The fruit of their hearts was evident for the world to see. And so are the acts of kindness and the acts of mercy and love primarily known among us who call ourselves Christians? I wanted to take some time this morning as I was preparing for this week to encourage all of you to say what an amazing church this is, uh, East Parkway. The support my family, Becky and I, have felt for many of you in our new seasons of life, in our um, difficult seasons of life, in times of need. The, I know that you guys care for us and you care for each other. The people that call this church home uh, can call each other family in a way. And I so appreciate that, as Ross was mentioning when he uh, was sharing about their experience the last couple weeks. You guys love each other so well. And you reflect God's love so well. Whether it's picking each other up at the airport, uh, prepping meals for each other, or lending cars to people who are down a car, uh, repairing damages in each other's homes, giving medical advice to each other or legal business advice, um, helping each other move, uh, or just being present with each other, driving over to each other's homes and just spending time with each other. You guys do this so well, and I am so thankful for it. These are all examples that just came from just a quick 30-second thought off of my head of things that I know that you guys are doing, and I know there's countless more of the things that you guys do to love each other. And so I know that I have personally experienced, and I thank God for the fruit of your hearts that God uses to provide for others like myself. And so as an exhortation to you, just keep doing it. Keep it up. It's so good. I hope that we are feeling the love, and I hope that people around us that are not a part of our church are seeing that we care for each other. I pray that uh, this body of believers here at East Parkway Church would be one that's marked with these acts of love and kindness and mercy. Good job. Back to our passage. We see that both the wicked and the righteous, the sheep and the goat, had the same opportunity, but both groups were surprised. Right? They, they, uh, they didn't know. And it's because they didn't see these opportunities as serving Jesus himself. The righteous, the one who did all these things, say in verses 37 through 39, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty, give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, naked and clothe you? When? When was that? And the wicked also say the same thing. When did we do that? When did we not do that, God? When did that not happen? And Jesus explains in verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. He says that to the righteous. And to the wicked, he explains, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. 
So I think Jesus is saying that, the, uh, that our actions show our heart, reveal what is in our heart. If our heart is for Christ, then the love of Christ will manifest itself in loving actions for others. And because Christ dwells in those who believe through his Holy Spirit, when we are loving other people, we are loving God. When we show acts of mercy and love to other believers, we are really loving Christ. So what does the Bible say about our eternal destiny? The second thing it says in our passage is that we will be judged on how we respond to Christ. For those who believe, Christ will be looking at the evidence in our lives of his love manifested towards others who believe. And then the third thing our passage brings up is heaven and hell. This uh, answer to our eternal destiny is found in verses 34 and 41. The two groups, the wicked, and the, the wicked and the righteous, where are they going? Verse 34 explains that for the righteous, they will inherit the kingdom of God, and for the wicked, they will enter the eternal fire. Both of these destinations have been prepared since the very beginning, and they are the only two options, heaven or hell. What is heaven? Heaven is a place where those who believe have eternal life, a place where God's will is understood and obeyed to the fullest. Heaven, or eternal life, as it says in our passage, is the place of right and perfect relationship with God and with other believers. Heaven is a place where God dwells. It's not just a state of mind or some... It's a, it's a physical, it's a real place. It's a place of holiness, which means there is no sin. Heaven is full of God's glory, treasure beyond measure, a joy unspeakable... It's a place of celebration, of being united with Christ. It's a place where believers are whole and all is restored as to how God intended. Heaven is where believers will know God to the fullest, where his angels, the heavenly creatures, and all the saints will worship him. The New Testament says a lot about heaven. Uh, We could be here all morning reading every single passage that talks about heaven, But I want to read one from Revelation 21, which says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now read this verse because it reminds me of our passage in Matthew. When Jesus is describing what the righteous do, they address the hunger, the thirst, the lack of clothes, the lack of relationship. When there are people who are lacking and then other believers come alongside them and love them, I think this is a glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven is. A place where there will be no more hunger, no more thirsting, no more sickness or pain, no more suffering. And so when Christians show this love to each other, they are participating in God's kingdom. It's not heaven at its fullest, uh, but it's, some of it is, with, is present with us now. It's a taste, it's a glimpse of what is to come, and it should bring us hope. But what is temporary here on earth, the joy of worship, the love amongst each other, a peace in our hearts, truth, 
wisdom and holiness and goodness, all those things are temporary here. All of those will reach fulfillment in heaven, in heaven and be permanent forever. Heaven is a place where our hearts will want nothing else but God and we will be filled completely. Uh, in some New Testament passages, the word used for heaven has ties to the word uh, that means garden. And that links us back to the Garden of Eden. And uh, where God dwelt originally with Adam and Eve. And I really like that picture. That in the new heavens and earth, Christ, uh, Christians will be communing with God without sin, just as he intended. Creation will be redeemed and humanity restored to God. So what is heaven? Heaven is a place of... A, eternal relationship with God. And what about hell? Well, hell, from our passage, is the place for the cursed. These people rejected God and now will face eternal separation from him. It is a punishment. The right and only outcome for sin and rejection of God. There is fire, a burning, gnashing of teeth, weeping, darkness, it's a place of terrible suffering. And more than the physical suffering that will be felt will be the lack of God, the distance and separation of his presence, of his goodness, of his love. And they will know that they are being punished. Those who are in hell will have faced the judgment. They will know that God is real and they will realize that they did not believe and that they will never experience relationship with him. I want to say that if this concept of hell is difficult for you to grasp, it's a good thing, and you're not alone. For instance, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, wrote about hell, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity. Wayne Grudem says in his systematic theology, if our hearts are never moved with deep sorrow when we contemplate this doctrine, then there is a serious deficiency in our spiritual and emotional sensibilities. And he references Paul in Romans who has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for the lost. And Ezekiel, um, when God says, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Why is it so hard for people to grasp the realities of hell? It's hard because within us, in our hearts, we have the love that God has put in us for others created in his image. And that includes sinners who do not believe. We should have a love for them. Our hearts should yearn to see others come to Christ because we know the reality that awaits them and we should not want that reality for anyone. Some people take the distress that they feel when contemplating hell as a sign that it cannot be true or should not be true. There are those who have taken hell out of their theology completely. But this uh, is a grave mistake. And in so doing, they are denying God's character as him being holy and righteous, which means that he has to be separated from those who are unrighteous and with sin. In the midst of any distress that we feel about hell, rather than get rid of it from our belief, we should feel a desire for people to know Christ. We have to remember that we recognize that the Bible is God's word, and his word is true, and we believe in his perfect wisdom, and that he will bring punishment to those who reject him. 
I want to quote Grudem one more time. He says at the end of this section, Yet we must also realize that whatever God in his, wis- in his wisdom has ordained and taught in Scripture is right. Therefore, we must be careful that we do not hate this doctrine or rebel against it, but rather we should seek, insofar as we are able, to come to the point where we acknowledge that eternal punishment is good and right, because in God there is no unrighteousness at all. Scripture clearly tells us that hell is a place. It's a place of punishment for sins, and it's a place where there's a lack of God's presence. So what does the Bible say about our eternal destiny. The third thing from our passage is that there is both a heaven and a hell, and that they are very real. And these are the only two eternal destinations, one spent with God and one without. And so I want to end with uh, asking some questions to you. The gospel compels us to look forward toward our eternal destiny, And in looking forward, our present reality should be affected. Jesus tells us what's in store, and we are to live knowing what comes next. So while we live our lives, do we live with one eye on the future of knowing that there is heaven or hell awaiting us? The gospel clearly states that there are only two options and that God alone can judge. The heart of others is not for us to judge, but it's still our job to share the gospel because we do not know who is the wicked or the righteous, who is the sheep or the goat, who believes and who does not. So, are you sharing the gospel with those in your life? Does the reality of hell put a burden on your heart for those in your life to know Christ? And then thirdly, the gospel conveys that Christ in our lives, transforms us and compels us to love and show mercy. And so simply is Christ at work in your life. Are the fruits of his love for you evident in your life to others? When confronted with an opportunity to show love and mercy, are you taking that opportunity? Are you loving others out of selfish ambition or out of the, light, out of the love that Christ has given you? So as we ask those questions of ourselves, I would encourage us, and and as we examine our hearts, to let down any defenses that we may have and any walls that we have put up and let the Spirit work in conforming us to Christ. I'll end with this. Um, Through this final judgment, God is good, God is sovereign, and God is perfect in his wisdom, justice, and love. Eternal destiny can be difficult to understand, but we remember that God's ways are higher than ours, and just because we don't fully understand something doesn't mean it's wrong or that it can't be. We have to push further into him, seek his truth, and pray for God's peace and understanding. Uh, But we are very thankful to have the Bible to help us answer these questions. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for... Again, another week of a hard question and uh, thankful for your word that can guide us as we seek to know you more and your truth and the truth for us and how we're supposed to live. I pray, God, that after reading this passage, we would have a burden for those who are lost, for those who need you and need to have relationship with you. God, I pray that we would be uh, eager to 
hear your spirit move in us and when you're calling us to, to speak to someone, to um, engage in conversation, to bring up your truth. And God, I pray that we would remember that in those conversations, it's your spirit that convicts and we are just communicators of your gospel. God, I pray that you would help us to see the realities that await. There's only two. It's heaven or hell. They're very real. And I pray that um, we would live with a, a joy in knowing you and a joy of knowing what comes next, of eternal life with you. Perfect relationship. God, as, as was prayed earlier, as we leave this morning, I pray that we leave knowing you in a deeper way and empowered to follow you with everything that we have and give you all the glory at all times. So we pray this in your name. Amen.